Wednesday edition of Smith & Jones. The holiday hiatus is over. We're back and we're uh, happy to be back. Thanks for joining us on this Wednesday morning and a lot to dive into over the course of the next couple of hours. And most notably, last night, the Toronto Raptors back on the floor. Uh, a couple of days removed from the blowout in Cleveland. The Raptors getting some healthy bodies back last night. few players clearing COVID protocols, most notably Pascal Siakam and Gary Trent Jr., Malachi Flynn as well, all three in the starting lineup, and the Raptors put up a fight. But as uh, we noted on our broadcast and even in our little post-game vlog as well that you can always find on our social media handles, you know, no no uh, moral victories in sports. And um, at the end of the day, in spite of the battle, in spite of the fight, the Raptors lose to the 76ers by 5, 114-109 the final. Uh, I, I will emphasize the point, though. It was a battle, and I give the Raptors still undermanned. And yes, Philly missing a couple of pieces as well, but uh, I would argue uh, more pieces missing, more notable pieces missing for the Raptors with OG Ananobi still sidelined and Fred Van Vliet still out as well with, with seven, eight guys still uh, sidelined with COVID protocols. And heck, even last night, Jones, we see a player clearing protocols in the first half and then in uniform and in the game and making an impact in the second half. So this is kind of the world we're living in right now. But the Raptors uh, had a five-point lead in the first quarter, ended up uh, trailing for most of the rest of the game by only about four, six, eight points. Just a... Uh, you know, Philadelphia holding that younger brother at an arm's length with that the hand on the forehead, keeping that little kid off. And all of a sudden, the Raptors punch back, take a lead with 55 seconds left in the game. In spite of the fact they were trailing by 12 in the fourth quarter, they come all the way back to take a lead, but they can't close it out. A 6-0 run to close the game for the Sixers. They win by five. The Raptors have now lost two straight and sit three games below 500 with one game left in this calendar year. And I think we might have just dropped Jonesy. So we'll get him back into the mix in a second. So I'll tell you that next game coming up on the 31st to close out the year is against the Los Angeles Clippers, and it's at home. And I will acknowledge this right off the bat. One of the things we will discuss right now, but also later in the show as well, because it is clearly a topic. Uh, a couple of people reached out to me asking questions on social media, and I'm being completely forthright and honest with you right here. I obviously don't represent Rogers. I'm just an employee. I don't represent or work for even Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment, so I can't speak for them. I'm just speaking as a broadcaster who's thrilled to be calling games, who's excited to still be working, who's appreciative of the fact that he's still able to work and hopefully do so in a safe and healthy setting and manner, etc. But I share some of the, um, I think confusion for me is the better word. I don't know if it's frustration. Some people are frustrated. I'm more confused, and what I'm confused by is, again, what some of you are also confused by or frustrated by, some are angry about, some are excited about, hence the polarized uh, world we've lived in now for a couple of years. Heck, the world is normally polarized in general anyways, but especially with COVID, and that is, why is it that we're still wondering what might be happening with kids, for those of us that are parents, come Monday morning? Why is it that we can't have visitors going to long-term care facilities? Why is it that many of us were hemming and hawing over what we should or shouldn't do or who we should or shouldn't see over the holidays? Why are businesses and restaurants at 50% capacity and people are scrambling for rapid tests and, and many people in lockdown, but yet Scotiabank Arena is open for anywhere from five to ten to eight to seven thousand people for Raptor games and fingers crossed hopefully eventually soon enough 
a return of the Toronto Maple Leafs as well. Uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate that there's, again, as I say, confusion or frustration or anger or happiness or excitement or whatever your emotion may be. It's running the gamut right now. Um, A lot of stuff doesn't seem to make sense right now. We'll try to unpack some of that right now with our own opinions. We'll be joined by some experts later on in the show that can maybe help shed a little bit of light. And we currently await an announcement from uh, either the Premier or the Minister of Health in regards to, again, everyday life, let alone what may or may not happen with sports. But Jonesy, I'll say again, to circle back to just maybe a minute or two ago, the confusion um, or just even the, uh, the, 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 the drama, the moving parts, the curveballs, the ever-changing atmosphere from a professional sports standpoint, from an NBA standpoint, and specifically to the Toronto Raptors, was no more evident than last night when you've got players being cleared to play and to return, others that haven't who are tweeting that they're confused by the protocols and may be back by next game, while yet another player is spending the first half clearing protocols only to be in uniform at halftime, then on the bench, then on the floor, and making an impact in the second half. It's all just sort of a mind bend right now, to say the least. At least it is for me. Yeah, it is for me too, Eric. And, um, I I, I mean, you express confusion, um, and, and so do I, and we talked about this last night. Not just the confusion for me, it's it's... It's a, it, there's a degree of frustration as well when I look at the fact that um, a year ago, we were just, at uh, this time, we were just kind of starting this 72-game shortened season where the Raptors had moved to Tampa. Um, so we weren't going to be in the mix. There, wouldn't be, there wasn't going to be any, we didn't know at the time, but there wasn't going to be any travel or any live calls of games for us. We were in a studio the entire time a makeshift studio at that with daily testing. Uh, Here we are a year later, the season's somewhat back to normal, or at least it started that way. Partial capacity, full capacity. Now we're back to partial capacity, but the NBA's kind of trying to hit the moving target. Um, So is everybody. But the frustration for me comes in where a year later, we know more about, I guess, certain... Uh, strains of COVID-19. Like, I don't see as many people wearing face masks or rubber gloves or latex gloves or anything like that. Like, the maybe the incident... I don't know. I'm guessing. We'll have a doctor on. But maybe the incidence of um, contracting it through your eyes or by touch are are not as bad as by mouth because we're still wearing masks. Uh, So we know a little bit more about it. We know what to avoid. We kind of know what to do. We have uh, vaccines, boosters. As I said, we're educated. But yet the cases are worse. And it seems like we're, we're no better off. As a matter of fact, we're, we're further behind the curve of getting to controlling this thing. A year later, with all that we know and we have, it, it's, it's just frustrating. I was talking to some of the security guards at Scotiabank last night about it. You know, you and I had to have, you know, for safety, and I'm good with it. We had to be tested not once, but twice last night um, before we made our way down to the bowl to set up for the game. Uh, I mean, we're doing the games, we're broadcasting the games, wearing masks. Everybody in the building is wearing masks except for the people on the floor. It's just, I'm just kind of frustrated as to why we haven't made more 
breakthroughs, why things haven't kind of improved. And I'm, I'm, you know, with basketball, yeah, but more with, you know, everyday life for elderly people and those that are vulnerable. And like, can we get, can we do something to get this thing under control or, or have some sort of better working knowledge of it? And, you know, the new variant now, they said, models will tell us back in the beginning of December, all oh, the models say by New Year's Eve, like we'll be up to 10,000 cases a day. Well, what were we at yesterday? 8,000 something? Like we were 9,000 the day before that in, in Ontario. We're getting there and that's not good. Well, it's over 10,000 today. The numbers have already started to leak oh, out. They normally come out around 1030. But uh, it is over 10,000 today. I believe I saw the number was just over 10,400. Uh, so so we're, we're, we're definitely there. I guess from my standpoint, Jonesy, again, we're not the experts, so we'll, we'll maybe stay away from the, the, the actual yeah. the, the, the medicine of it and the, uh, the science of it. But I, I, I don't – I guess I – listen, I think I, I think I speak on behalf of everybody as you just kind of did as well in that find me somebody that isn't frustrated right now, right? Even if you, whether you are a vaxxer, an anti-vaxxer, whether you are believing in science, whether you are anti-science, whether you are frustrated and just done with all of this but still respecting the science and the medicine, whatever it may be, everybody's frustrated. I can't imagine there's one person out there, even the, even the, the richest person in the world, whether it's rich by wealth or rich by family, rich by mind, whatever it may be, Everybody, to some degree, has to be frustrated by uh, what they have experienced or what the world is experiencing over the last two years. I'd be shocked if there's not one person out there that doesn't have some level of frustration. For me, my frustration, again, I keep coming back to, is more with the confusion. Because I, at least, what basic, limited, extremely limited knowledge I think I have is why we're at this point now, why we seem like we've gone back, is because of the new variant. Had it not been for um, Omicron, it looked like we were ahead of things. We were at 100% capacity. Schools seem to be doing good. I'm not going to say fine, but good or better. Uh, businesses had been reopened at, at 100% capacity. People were going into restaurants. Travel was beginning again. People were taking vacations. And all of a sudden, this new variant this pops up, and it sends everybody sideways. And that, to me, is the biggest issue. And that's now where the confusion lies, where I'll tune into a game tonight and watch our friends in the States have full arenas and unmasked broadcasters and predominantly unmasked fans, and we'll hear about people hopscotching all over traveling the U.S., etc. But yet in Canada, it's a different story. Now, are we overreacting or are they extremely underreacting? Because one of the numbers I read yesterday, and take this for what it's worth, and, and Jonesy, I know you've, you, you uh, follow Ryan Imgrund. I know a lot of people do. And again, yeah. a polarizing figure. Some people will say, oh, he's too extreme other people are saying no he's the one spitting the truth and telling it one of the things that ryan tweeted out and i screen grabbed it just specifically to mention it to you is the rumblings about what should happen right now in society which thus impacts sports hence the reason we're talking about it the cdc comes out and recommends now five-day isolation right stateside five days the nba right, believes right, still right. at six at least toronto public health is still saying ten and there's rumblings about what announcement might come today or tomorrow from the province and whether or not we might be changing our guidelines and our days and our isolation. And one of the things Ryan said, Ontario is looking to take isolation advice from a country that has 26% of the world's daily COVID cases, but yet only 4% of its population. So just because we're watching the U.S. sports and seeing arenas fill full, excuse me, 
Does that mean we should be taking advice from them? For the, for, for the most part, and I don't mean this to be disparaging, but it's been a fact, it's been a truth, many of us, not going to say all of us, many of us throughout these last two years have been looking stateside and saying, what the heck are they doing? What's going on in Texas? What is happening in Florida? At least California and New York seem to be handling it. What's going on in middle America? Can you believe this, Jones? Eric, can you believe that? Holy cow. What? But now we're going to twist it and go, well, hold on a second. Are we overreacting here? Like, And I think it's just, as I say, it's the confusion. It's the frustration. It's that everybody's spent. Everybody's spent. And how do you navigate through this now? How do you navigate Jonesy through professional sports right now that are charging 100% of the same price for 50 40 70 80% of the product? Because when I say the product, the product not just the players, but the product being the experience. You're paying full tap right now for a ticket to a sporting event, let's just say specifically in Toronto, where you're not seeing your full team, you're not seeing even 50% of your team, and you're not able to buy a beer or buy any food, and you got to line up for 30 minutes just to get into a team store. There's no discount on the tickets. Last night even, how many people ate their tickets because 50% capacity at Scotiabank Arena is just under 10,000, and the announced crowd last night was just under seven. That means a whole lot of people that had tickets to the game either couldn't go or wouldn't go and thus had to eat that price. And that's a tough yeah. business perspective as well. So it's – I don't have the answers. I just got a lot of questions, and I'm not sure how we navigate through it. I really don't. I, I'm not either, um, I, You know, I want um... – the professor that supervised me through my master's degree uh, was an expert in his area of focus. He had his doctorate in, in sports cohesion in the sports psychology area. And when I launched into mine, he sat me down. He a really great man, really great man, since passed away, uh, Bert Karen uh, at, at University of Western Ontario. And Bert said to me, he said, kid, he said, Jonesy, you know something? I'll tell you something. And I waited like with the all like for this wisdom, and it, it just it, it struck a chord with me what you, with what you just said right now. He said, I, "I'm supposed to be an expert in team cohesion and in sports psychology." He said, "I got to tell you something. I got these letters behind my name, but the more you know, the more you don't know." And I started to laugh. He said, "What are you laughing?" I said, "Because my dad used to say that in Latin." And it's here we are, like all this stuff we think we know and. The more you know, the more you don't know. And, 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 and here we are. And the, you're right. The, the frustration yesterday, we, we looked around. The building was not nearly what we know that building to be or what it can be, but what can you do with the times? And we're season seat holders, and I, you know, I, I was able to not sell but give my tickets away last night. Um, I mean, people are saying that when it comes to sports, professional sports, the bottom line is running decisions. The, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the tail is wagging the dog, so to speak, and, and not the other way around. People are like, well, why don't you shut down for a... Well, yeah, okay, they shut down, then they got to rebook, they got to redo the schedule, they got to check building availability. They're trying not to have games postponed. 
because, you know, do you make those up at the end of the year? Well, for a team like the Raptors, those three games, of course you make those up depending on where they are right now. Um, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's mind boggling and we're not, you know, we're, we're still in the vortex. We're not out of it yet. I, 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 I definitely know that part of it for sure. You know, and, and Jonesy to that point, and I guess I'm guilty then of, and I'm acknowledging folks, so you can call me out if you want, but I'm acknowledging it. I guess I'm guilty of absolutely sitting on the fence because if, if sitting on the fence is being, um, honest enough to admit that I see all sides, then call me sitting on the fence because I understand not shutting down a business. I understand commitments to advertisers and to, uh, to, to broadcast rights holders and to fans and to, uh, every other contract you'd have for food and beverage and everything else. I understand that. I understand the local business that says, no, don't shut me down. You can't make me close my doors again. Uh, I, I, this, this is what provides food on the table for my family. This is what helps me pay for my bills, my mortgage, et cetera. You can't shut me. I get all that. I get all that. But if I assume we continue to keep everything open and put kids back in schools and, 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 and live life even at 50% capacity, then the virus continues to spread unless we get people vaccinated and unless people get people boosted and then you have the people say well again after two years oh clearly the vaccine's not working look at the numbers going well look clearly you don't understand vaccines then look at the numbers then of hospitalizations versus deaths versus how many people are sicker for shorter periods or asymptomatic etc so it's just this never-ending ongoing wheel circle of conversation where we're never going to get ahead of it unless we completely board up the windows, board up the doors, and do absolutely nothing anywhere, anytime, and it's a complete police state lockdown. But at the same time, if we don't have some sort of measures, it's just going to run wild and never end. So what's the option? I, again, I'm seeing both sides. And I'm speaking, as you are as well, to being absolutely frustrated and, more importantly than anything else, also acknowledging that the... The liner in all this that is starting to be talked about more and more and more, and thankfully and rightfully so, is the mental health impact on especially young people, but all people. All people right now. Find me one person, as I said, that isn't frustrated. Find me one person that hasn't experienced some degree of uh, a mental health issue or or a little bit of... Um, uh, more of more of a down moment, down times in the last two years than perhaps they've had in their life. I know I have. I'm not going to sit here right now yeah. and say that I'm 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 suffering more than anybody else, but I know I've had darker days in the last two years than I have in the previous 20 years. I've seen it in my kid. I've seen it in people in my family. I know it's real. I'm, I'm going to guess it's the same for you, and I'm going to guess it's the same for everybody listening right now. So again, yeah, I don't have the answers. I've just got a lot of questions and and hoping that. We're not asking these same questions in a month, let alone two, three, four months, and that we actually can get on the other side of this. I, I don't know. Well, That's the best answer I can give. I, I don't know. I'm hoping the same thing, Eric. I, I really am. I'm hoping the same thing. But, um, you know, the one thing that this has shown us, like life, there are no guarantees. And yep. you, you just kind of keep keep fighting your way through it uh, and, and, you know, make the best. Try to have the best attitude you can and... and uh, make your way through it the best you can. I mean, we're all going to come out on the other side. We are. I, I, you know, that's the positive part of me. We're all coming out on the other side. And, you know, in 20 years, 30 years, you know, maybe I'll be gone, but the history books will look back at it and maybe things will uh, be painted in a, in a, you know, 
a more realistic light with more knowledge and, and uh, you know, awareness of what's going on. But uh, it's it's difficult. It's it is difficult right now. And I mean, all you had to do was watch. Like, like you said, we watched the game yesterday, and we we couldn't tell what was going on with. Oh, oh, wait. He's waiting to clear protocols at halftime, so he could play in the second half. Yeah. Well, how come those guys are sitting on the bench? Oh no, they're out of protocols. Oh, okay. Uh, just I uh, just questions abound. And again, I, I I default back to the more you know, the more you don't know. Yep. Well. Hey, even undermanned, again, the Raptors put up the battle, lost the game by five last night to the 76ers, and uh, a chance to uh, finish the year, this crazy, bonkers, frustrating year, 2021, coming to a close in a couple of days with the Raptors playing the Clippers at Scotiabank Arena. Uh, a man that had a 10-day, speaking of 10 days and emergencies and everything else, Alvin Williams, he told us the story last week about uh, joining the Clips on a 10-day, and that kind of spurred us to say, hey, you know what, let's have more time with Alvin next week. Well, next week is upon us, and we've got a little bit more time with Alvin. So we'll get into some storytelling. In fact, you know what? If you've got any uh, old-school, you know, Alvin Williams, Raptor days, uh, late 90s, early 2000 memories, you want to hit us up on Twitter, Paul, double underscore Jones, Eric, double underscore Smith. We can maybe raise some of those uh, stories, those questions, those those queries you might have. If you want to hit us up right now on Twitter, uh, you can send those to us. But we're going to get into a whole lot with Alvin Williams in his weekly visit when we continue on Smith & Jones on Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Back on Smith & Jones, Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Smith & Jones. Wherever you get your podcast, please rate and review as well. Uh, joining us on the line right now for his weekly visit. We've got a little bit longer this week to chat as we bring into the conversation our friend, our colleague, Alvin Williams. Al, good to talk to you as always. What's up, buddy? Happy holidays. Happy holidays, Al. Yeah, good to, happy good holidays, to hear from Al. you, man. Yeah. Good to be heard from. Hey, Al, last night, we're, we're going to get into a lot of stuff. We're going to get into a lot of stuff uh, over the next uh, 20, 30 minutes or so. I, I want to get into some old stories as well because we love hearing the old stories like you were telling us last week about the Clippers 10-day and reminiscing about Oakley over the last couple of weeks as well with Charles's new book coming out, et cetera. Uh, but last night specifically for the Raptors, you know, Jonesy and I have said it a bunch of times now. We said it off the top today, no moral victories in sports. But if you're the Raptors today, Al, how are you feeling about that when you put up a fight against Philly, they ultimately win the game, but knowing that you're still under man and that you battled back from down 12 in the fourth quarter. You had a one-point lead with a, you know, 55 seconds to go. You still lost the game. But can you take some positives out of that and try and apply it to your next game and to games going forward? I think when you're the coaching staff, you know, definitely you look into it and you start seeing people playing better. Chris Boucher, you know, got it. He's getting a great rhythm, I believe. You know, and you start seeing the outside shot going in. But – He's finding that way of being that person around that paint. And I looked at Pascal Siakam, finding teammates, creating, getting better, being more confident, going off the dribble, going to the left, finishing, you know, just getting into rhythm. You just want all of these pieces to be healthy and to be, you know, together now. So as a coach, I'm looking like, okay, these are things. You're starting to see the individual performance, Gary Trent Jr. back, and all these things. But as a player, it's hard to – to take a positive out of things when you lose because you always think about what could I have done to win the game, whether it was early in the game, at the end. So it's always that part as a player. As a coach, you, you, you look at the bright spots when you start putting a whole team together collectively and see what that potential truly is. Al, when you look at um, 
the last minute of the game. I mean, those. I mean, that's you play all game to get it to that point where you have a chance to win uh, in the last, you know, the last minute, the last thirty seconds, forty seconds, and it comes down to execution. How difficult is it from a player standpoint um, to be on the floor with the game on the line? running the team and you know that you want to call a play or you want to do something, but uh, Alvin Williams knows that, you know, DJ Wilson is new and and there's no time out to talk about it and you're basically flying by the seat of your pants. You're, you're, you're making it up as you go. You have to depend on basketball knowledge. How difficult is that? Because that's where you get into, as you said, the end of the game oh man we should have done this we could have done that but in the moment the circumstances make it that much more difficult yeah and in the circumstances that that's what it is it's that that piece where players are in different roles there that continuity isn't there um sometimes the confidence isn't there to make certain plays especially when when you have the ball in your hand or you have to make a certain decision or you have to make a play so those are those are the things that are critical, and that's when the good teams, and that's why the great players are who they are. I remember even when we had moments, and you guys remember when we had, we were injury, we had the injury bug when I think it was Coach Wilkins last year, and we we were calling people up from the CBA. We were we had we didn't even yeah. have enough players to practice. You know, at times we had six players. We used to play three on three on the side baskets in the ACC at the time. It was called in the practice facility. So we really didn't have much. And I was one of the guys myself, Mo Pete, and we had, I want to say, Bashawn Leonard that year as well. We were like kind of like the go-to guys because Vince wasn't there and Antonio wasn't there. And it was times where I had the ball in my hand in the last five seconds, and I'm usually waiting for Vince to make a play and ready to be that outlet if he kicked it to me to make a jump shot or get a deflection or something like that. So roles really change. And the execution is it, you might as well kick it out the window, especially when you don't have the camaraderie and you don't have that chemistry there because it's hard to execute. And you rely on the Vince Carters to get you out of jams and make a spectacular play or make it a hard play look easy because the team has to double-team him and then other people get their opportunity. So when you don't have those players and you don't have that chemistry, it's almost impossible to execute and, and win a game at the end unless – it's one of those circumstances that, you know, you got away with it. But for the long term, it's not going to be a, a model for success. You know, Al, just as, as a quick aside, I, I remember that season with all those injuries and whatever. And I, and I say this respectfully. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be critical. Sure, you always, I know where you're going. You, you always say I know where you're going. Then you, then you shoot me right in the head with it. But go ahead. Say no, it. no, no, no. No, no, no. I'm not sure. It's not you. It's not you. I, if Jonesy, maybe you don't know. Maybe you do. I still remember Lenny Wilkins. I do. I do. And Lenny Wilkins, and he's going to talk game. about a player. Yep. He's going to talk about game. a player from Syracuse. Yep. <laughs> he he must have mentioned Damon Brown about five times. Well, I was really impressed with Damon. Damon, and it's Damone. I'm thinking if the coach doesn't even know the dude's name, and I understand you confuse Damon and Damone, but the dude is on your team. You're the head coach, and it just speaks to, hey, man, this guy came flying in at the last minute. You barely know anything about him, and, hey, dude, can you play? Put on uniform <laughs> and go. And I'm telling you, after the game, he said it once. I'm like, oh, he must have just messed up. And then he said it again. And then he said it about 10 minutes later again. I'm like, the guy doesn't even know his own player's name. That just speaks. 
speaks to how crazy things are right now. And, and it's, uh, Al, I got to imagine, you don't even know. I don't mean you personally, but half the time you might not even know your, your teammate or know anything about the guy. And it's like, hey, go find chemistry with this guy and go figure it out in the middle of a game. No, you're right. I mean, you're definitely right. And I, I that was one funny thing. With So I don't know if it was the fact that Damone was, was – uh, was new or it was Coach Wilkins' age because a lot of times when we played the Celtics, he would call Paul Pierce Ricky Pierce. So you you, you figure a lot a lot of <laughs> all the players coach coached against and coached for and coach he all of the names are getting jumbled up. So I, I'm gonna give him I'm gonna give him a pass on that. But but yeah, it's, it's hard, man. It's hard really when when and the NBA is already hard to develop relationships because people could be gone one day here one day gone the next but when you in a situation like like now how funky it is and i think back to when i don't remember when the nfl they were on strike and they they had a bunch of the scab players playing in place of the players that were striking like in i guess in in their mid 80s or late whatever it was but this is very similar when you're looking at even when you're looking at the games you're like yo who am i looking at like and it's no disrespect like to you saying it's, it's all respect and it's all you know, the understanding, but it's like, who am I looking at? You can start to get to see people play. And the unfortunate thing is when you do have a good performance, like the Raptors did last night, then when you know, the reality is a lot of these players aren't going to be here anyway. Right. So it's just one of those things where we, whether you beat a team or you lose it or you lose to a team or you even win, this is not the team that we're going to move forward with anyway. So how do I really measure success and how do I really measure what we have right now moving forward? Al, Al, look, that's the tough thing for me. Um, you know, I, I took a lot of uh, DMs from people, uh, texts from friends, uh, people saying, well, why is why is DJ Wilson, like, not in the league? Like, what, what's going on with DJ Wilson and, and you know, like, uh, uh, Waters? Like, you know, he played for the Celtics. Why isn't this guy in the league? And uh, follow my theory here, Al, and this is from – my own thing from, I guess, years and years of of watching and hypothesizing. When you get down towards the back end of the roster, um, 10 or in your day, 11, 12, 10, 11, 12, now like 13, those are the guys that people in the front office, again, with no disrespect, look at as expendable. If you're mm-hmm. the 11th guy and you're you're okay, but you're not making an impact, they might look for another, quote, 11th guy to bring in to occupy that spot. And maybe he ends up making a bigger impact. So it has nothing to do sometimes with your ability than it does to, to the numbers game and that constant, sur- uh, that constant uh, search to, you know, improve your jump shot, improve your golf swing. Let's look, let's try something new. And they bring a new guy in. I- I've been impressed with DJ Wilson. The guy was a first round pick in the top, mm-hmm. that, like a 17 overall pick. And people are like, well, why isn't he in the league? To me, on a team like Milwaukee's at the back end of the roster, they're like, you know what, uh, let's try somebody else. And who do we let go? Uh, let, let him go. And and it probably didn't come easy because he was such a high pick. Yep. Yeah, no, you're right. It, it's so much to go go with that. And if, if unless you know, <laughs> then you don't know, man. It, it's just one of those things. I had a long conversation <laughs> with a buddy of mine. It's talking about us coming out of, you know, college and getting certain pre-draft workouts and not getting certain pre-draft workouts. A lot of things people don't realize, and it's right in front of their face, a lot of these things is real life. It's relationships. 
So you may have an 11th guy or 12th guy who has an agent that have a great relationship. Anything, all of these things, you know, play a role into some of the decision-making. It's not always basketball. It's not always talent. It's not always how much money you make, which that is a big part of it because once you are the 12th guy, you're making minimal salary, it's easy to get rid of that or it's easy to use that, you know, in a way for leverage or just not even worry about it. So there's a lot of things that go on when you're, you're putting a roster together and why certain players, they play, why certain players can't make a roster, so why certain players are in the position they're in. Some of it's due to their own, what's going on with themselves, but a lot of times it's the business of the sport. Jones, I'm trying to rack my brain who it was that told us in the last couple of months um, about a conversation they had with Courtney Charles when they first came to Toronto. I don't know if you can fill in the blank for me because my, my brain is a vapor right now. I'm trying to think who it was. But anyways, the, the whole point of the story, Al, is when you talk about relationship building, Courtney Charles now one of the VPs uh, with, with Raptors 905 and has worked with the Toronto Raptors organization for years and talking about picking up the phone uh, when, when Courtney called. And, and, and again, I'm paraphrasing and, and, and sort of trying to remember the story, but it's basically picking up the phone saying, yo, and Courtney saying, no, no, I'm going to call you back. And you're going to answer with a proper hello and answer, you know, respectfully and normally, you know, like a like a professional. And then, and he hung up the phone, called back, and and just those little things, Al. About you talk about relationship building, but just trying to find your way as a young player. And I think we've talked about this before, especially a guy like Scotty Barnes. You know, he's not even 21 years old. He can't even go into certain establishments. He can't even have a beer, you know, legally. Um, but yet here he is living away from home for the first time, like in another country and, and trying to deal with the pressures of the league on the floor, let alone off the floor and trying to build these relationships you're speaking of where he's got, you know, companies and businesses coming for him because he's this great personality. He's got a big smile and an infectious guy and you want to be around him and he's a budding star, etc. And yet you're supposed to be mature enough and responsible enough to handle all of this that's being thrust upon you in a matter of three, six, nine months, and life comes at you real fast. Yeah, no, right. But, you know, I, I'll flip it and say you're not supposed to be mature enough, but we're supposed to have an understanding and a sensitivity behind it when a lot of players, they're, they're not ready for it. Upon, you know, opposed to us, you know, judging or looking down or criticizing or being critical, right, because – We've all been 21 years old. We've all been, you know, 19, but we haven't been in the position of a Scotty Barnes. We haven't been in the position of a Kobe Bryant or Allen Iverson. But, you know, we've been at that age. So it's just one of those things where we've had so many conversations over dinner and and lunch about situations like this. So you know where we stand on this. You, You can't expect a young person stepping into this world to have it all figured out. You can't expect an older person to have it all figured out because when you get past this stage, then you have the stage of family. You have the stage of maybe marriage. You have a stage of your own businesses. And these are things you're learning on the fly. There's not too many people coming up in the NBA, young people, especially from certain backgrounds and certain demographics, that they have the blueprint or they have the support system or they have the information given to them getting to this point. Mm-hmm. So we just have to have an understanding mm-hmm. and a sensitivity that you know, they are learning on the job. And then when you when you want to be, when you are the best person that you can be, and you come up morally, you know, one way, and, you know, it could be everything in order. When, this thing, when all these things are put in front of you, finances, popularity, opportunity, access, a lot of people change. A lot of people change, and 
and it impacts them in different ways. So I think, once again, it's important for the people outside, the fans, the leaders, the people, management, ownership, and things like that have an understanding and have a certain patient level, patience level when athletes are going through this process. Al, is there a guy, you know, Eric talked about that story, and I'm, I'm, I, I've talked to so many people, I don't remember who it was, but I, I think it's a local guy in Toronto here, but is there a guy that when you came into the league that was around your age, you looked at it and you said, man, dang, this, this cat had got it figured out. I mean, I, I, I heard the stories later in his career. One that has always stuck with me was Michael Redd from the Milwaukee Bucks, a second-round pick, self-made player, uh, part of the 2008 Olympic team. And, he, and, and the, the story goes, he was meeting with Jerry Colangelo about being on that Redeem team in 2008. And the meeting was taking place kind of in a, in a situation where he was practicing or he just finished practice. And Jerry Colangelo was there. He said, hang on, Mr. Colangelo, I'll be back in one minute. And he ducked into like a dressing room or a washroom or whatever and changed out of his, his workout gear and put a suit on mm -hmm. to meet the guy who was running USA Basketball because that's the impression he wanted him to have. Is there a guy who came in with you or just ahead of you or just behind you that you can remember or a few guys you say, man, this cat got it figured out? Um, because it's hard, like you said. You, yeah. It's hard. Yeah. It, it's hard. And then when you're, when you're that young, you're looking at guys, if they are like a Michael Red as being a weirdo, like what the heck is wrong with him? Like I would never do that. Or why is he dressed up? Or why is he kissing butt? Or why? Like we look down upon people that have things figured out or thinking differently than we are at times or have a different approach. But I will say, and not to tap myself on the back, I had that understanding early, luckily because of my dad. So all of my pre-draft yeah. workouts, my dad would always make me wear a suit and tie. Like, I'd get to the pre-draft workouts and, you know, other guys are wearing their sweatsuits and tees and, you know, maybe a polo shirt or whatever. I always had to go to everything with a suit and tie. My dad used to always tell me, it's a business, it's an interview. This is a whole, you're not going just to play basketball. So I always had that understanding. Going to Villanova, you know, we had to, you know, always meet alumni and we had to go to different events dressed up. We had to wear certain things. Even when I was in high school, when we had game day, we had to wear, we had to present ourselves in a certain way. So I've always had an understanding of perception and how you carry yourself and how your approach is when you're going into different situations. Although I didn't like it and I, I fought against it because it wasn't the cool thing, but I did have an understanding. I did have an understanding going into, you know, meeting with GMs and meeting with coaches and attending practice early you know, be the first one there, be the last one to leave, and you know all of those things. So, and, and just coming up, you know, guys staying in school for four years. A lot of people back then had that understanding. You know, Tim Duncan was one of those guys, a mega star, but he carried himself with, with so much humility. And you know, he was he was one of those guys that you looked at. And I saw Chauncey Billups. I saw all of these guys. So everybody had, you know, a, a professional approach. At that at that time when I was coming into the NBA, so I can't pinpoint one person, but that definitely was you know the message and the approach that a lot of us you know took when we were trying to get to where we wanted to get to. 
Speaking with Alvin Williams, Alec, I, I want to stay on this. I, I, I find it really interesting, and I'm sure the audience does as well. When it, when it comes to prepping for the pros as well and handling all the pressures that come with being a pro athlete, um, we've heard many times over the years about the various teams uh, or individuals through their agents, whatnot, that go through media training and trying to prep for that aspect of being a professional and having the microphones thrust in your face on a daily basis, especially if you're playing in a, in a major market where it's not just a couple of writers or a couple of reporters. It might be 10, 15, 20 or more. Um, and, and speaking to what you were saying earlier about guys coming from different backgrounds and upbringings, uh, you go into certain markets and many markets – um, especially 10, 20 years ago, and, and, and certainly even, unfortunately, to this day, the media not always reflective uh, of, the, of, the, of the people that are playing in the game. And you're, you're staring across the, 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 the aisle at a bunch of uh, folks that you don't know, you don't know if you can trust, you don't know their reputations, and yet they're asking you questions that might be personal or whatever. How do you handle that, and how do you uh, start to build that trust with reporters broadcasters in general let alone certain individuals and and knowing who to talk to when to talk to and 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 how to balance all of that i think it comes over time like any relationship it it takes time it takes you know the trust has to be built and just having an understanding having empathy for both sides i think you know when i was young and i always reflect back to me because the only experience i had but you know, not really understanding the job of the media, right? It's not it's not necessarily, you know, you you you're supposed to the media you're supposed to use the media, or the media's supposed to be on your side, or you know, speak the positive things. Sometimes they they gotta be truthful. Sometimes it's different angles. Sometimes it's different things depending on the individual. So having an understanding and making sure you understand what that relationship will look like, and having some um, control over the relationship as well. I, I watched Jalen Rose when he played for the Raptors. I watch how he approached the media, not even knowing that, you know, one day he wanted to be in that profession, but he really prepared. He he conducted himself. He put himself in position at certain times, and it was strategic. Like, everything he did regarding, I think, you know, re- relationship with the media was strategic. And I watched that. As a youngster, I didn't know that. So I, I rarely read the papers. I rarely had much to say to the media because it was more of a transactional relationship opposed in a true relationship where we can just, you know, use each other for what we want to get and, and create something. You know, you and I, Eric and Jonesy, we, we've had good relationships throughout the years, but it got better when I wasn't playing. So it's just, I think as a young person having an understanding, which I think they do have more access to media and it's different outlets of media. They have their own control of their social media. So it's different forms of it. So I just think, once again, it's, it's having an understanding of what the media is about and, and really having patience developing that relationship. Al, uh, you know, you just you got me thinking there about media and the relationships with the media. Um, some of the vets that you played with, I'm, I'm thinking about a guy like Oakley or a guy like Antonio Davis that had been around the league uh, in big markets, in, in big situations, and had to answer to that. Did they ever... Did they ever offer any bits of advice to some of the guys in the locker room like, hey, man, you know, don't talk to that guy or, or when you talk to this woman, do th- say this or, you know, words of caution or anything like that? I mean, that's it's kind of family stuff that's shared, but I'm, I'm mm-hmm. sure there was some of that out there. I'm sure some of that was out there like, you know, that that guy's a so and so or no, this 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 guy's OK. You can he, he's cool. And like it's what we don't know on the outside is media, how we are perceived within the the confines of a locker room 
Yeah, um, you know, with me, not so much. With Vince and probably Tracy, because they were young and they were getting a lot of attention, I'm sure Oakley, well, I can't say I'm sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if Oakley, Muggsy, D, Antonio, like those guys, Kevin, would do those things because, you know, those guys were the best. You know, they were professional, they were so experienced, and they had everything. And I watched, you know, from afar, because I, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't getting that many interviews, but. I watched how they would conduct themselves with the media. And I saw how Oakley, he would be combative. He would be quick. He would be, you know, dismissive at times. He would, and he would talk. He would have different approaches. But that's what helped me realize, oh, it's, this is part of it. Like, it's cool to uh, a media to you disagree or they say something that you don't agree with. And, you know, tomorrow we can have a conversation or we can do another interview. And it's not personal. Like, I, I realized that, you know, a lot of the relationships don't have to be personal. It, it doesn't have – you don't have to take everything personal. So, it's most things that I've learned just watching them and, and, and listening to them do interviews. But, um, no, we didn't have many conversations about media and how to go about media. At least I didn't. But, uh, like I said, Vince and Tracy and some of the younger other guys, they may have. They may have. Al, listen, man, we appreciate the time as always. We went a little bit longer this week, and, and, and hey, maybe we'll do the same next week as well. Uh, all the best for the final few days of 2021, and we'll look forward to speaking to you in the new year, man. Yes, indeed. Great talking to you guys. Happy New Year. If I don't talk to you before. Always, Al. There is Alvin, Alvin Williams, our friend, our colleague. Longtime Toronto Raptor as well, and uh, always love having him on. And, and Jonesy, the last couple of moments there, even thinking about the the veterans, and, and this is, goes back to a conversation you and I had uh, three, four days ago when the Raptors were playing the Cavaliers. It, it's only one guy, not not four or five guys, uh, but the impact that Kevin Love can have on a young Cleveland team, the impact that a Ricky Rubio can have, and how much that will now hurt them if he's out of their lineup as he got hurt last night, and it looks like it could be a pretty significant injury. But think back to that Raptors team. It, well, as I say, it wasn't just one or two guys like Love and Rubio. It's Kevin Willis, Charles Oakley, Antonio Davis, Del Curry, D. Brown, Muggsy Bogues. Like, that was huge, huge for the development of T-Mac, let alone for a guy that was here a heck of a lot longer in Vince Carter. And they were at a point, Eric, where they were able to win. It's yeah. not like you got a couple of those guys and the teams, the teams middle of the road, or they're they're kind of suspect, or they're up and down, and you know maybe these young guys aren't listening to these vets. No, no, Char Charles Oakley was he was he was in the pressure cooker with the Knicks against uh, you know Michael Jordan and the Bulls. You know Antonio Davis was playing for the Pacers, you know, big-time stuff against the Knicks, trying to get to the conference finals. Like this, D. Brown was a Celtic. You know, Muggsy Bogues has done some of this, where he was with an expansion team in Charlotte. So it, it, all of that said, and now the team is good enough that they're looking to make noise. And it was the perfect storm for those vets that still had the ability to play, they had the experience, and they had young guys in Tracy and Vince, and I'll never forget Oak saying this, they were the lead singers, we were the backup band. But the backup band at one time were almost like lead singers themselves, so they understood it perfectly. So um, that, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward. We had him on last week, I'm really looking forward to Charles Oakley's book when he start, starts to talk about that stuff. It was funny as well, just as a quick aside, and, and, I'm, and I'm kind of paraphrasing the conversation, but, but you know, 
when we booked Oak, uh, our, our regular producer, Mark Boffo, uh, pr- you know, said that Oak, Oak made a comment to him, something along the lines of, man, that thing doesn't even come out until February. We don't need to talk about the book. What else do these guys want to talk about? Meanwhile, all I've seen from Oak on his social media last week is the book, the book, the book, pictures of the book. I don't know if we, we spurred him on to start promoting this thing a little bit more, but I am absolutely in, in lockstep with you, man. I'm looking forward to that. And I don't care if there's a free copy coming. I'm buying one. I'm, I'm getting on that list, and I'll be buying that one, man. I'll tell, I'll tell you what, E. I'll tell you what. Um, Oak is the kind of guy that he would say that to us and our producer. Man, that book doesn't – the book's not out till February. And somebody would tap him on the shoulder. And this is, this is, this is how leadership is. Leadership listens as well, as much yeah, as they, yeah, yeah. You, know, uh, they you know, give out knowledge, as much as they disseminate knowledge, they take it in too. You can bet. Maybe Frank Isola or somebody said, hey, man, you should start pumping your book. Ah, it's not for a couple months. No, 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 no. This is the time to do it, to build it up and get people looking forward to it. And he would be like, I know, he'd be like, well, you think so? Yeah, man, that stuff works. All right. And not be too proud to say, no, nah, I'm not doing that. Like, you're right. It, it, it's been all over his social media. And it would not surprise me. And I don't think he'd ever admit it if somebody said to him, now, you know, you should start thinking about this. Because mm-hmm. he would. Well, we're getting them back for sure. We're getting them back oh, yeah. uh, when when the book's officially out or, or maybe even before and after that. Uh, either way, folks, if you want to listen back to that conversation with Charles Oakley, it was about a week, week and a half ago. You can always find it on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and, of course, you can listen back to today's show as well. Smith & Jones, you can find it again wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, and review. Back on Smith & Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. Again, make sure you subscribe to Smith & Jones wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate and review as well. The Toronto Raptors last night losing to the Philadelphia 76ers by 5. 50% capacity at Scotiabank Arena. There was less than 50%, just under 7,000 people uh, watching the Raptors nearly pull off the comeback. But again, a uh, narrow loss for the Raptors. They've lost two in a row. Close out the calendar year on the 31st at home again this time against the Los Angeles Clippers. But to uh, talk about, well, 50% capacity and, and Omicron and COVID and a whole lot more, a man that is a hell of a lot smarter than us, Jonesy, and we say that we don't have the answers and we're just kind of yep. trying to figure it all out. Well, a man that has at least, if he doesn't have the answers, he has, certainly has a better understanding of uh, some of the answers or, or some of the questions and, and, you know, helping lead us to where we maybe need to get to. Uh, Dr. Isaac Bogach from uh, Infectious Disease Physician and Scientist from uh, University of Toronto, and he joins us on the line right now dr isaac appreciate the time today hey guys great to chat two quick things one love the intro music and two i'm glad, I'm glad the way you framed it i don't i don't think i have all the answers i sure don't but like we can at least understand this and walk through this together yes you you have a better understanding of what it yes. might take <laughs> so certainly better than a couple of schmucks like us um <laughs> so can can you explain to us because i i'm going to repeat myself doc from from off the top of the show uh, so bear with me for a second here, and, and, and sorry to the audience that it's hearing it for a second time. But both Jones and I, as NBA broadcasters, we're thrilled to be working. We're thrilled to be calling games. We're thrilled to have the opportunity to continue to work and to hopefully do so safely, etc. But then there's also part of us just as, you know, regular human beings, as, as fathers, as, 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 you know, partners, as parents, as just citizens 
that are scratching our heads going, all right, so hold on a second. We're, we're still sitting here as of this second wondering what might be happening with kids on Monday for school. And long-term care facilities can't have visitors now. And businesses are at 50% capacity. And people have been scrambling like crazy the last week and a half trying to get their hands on, on rapid tests to figure out, should we be meeting with families? Should we be getting together for the holidays? What should we be doing? Should we just lock it down? Meanwhile... Come on down to the Raptor game. There's 50% capacity. We could have as many as 10,000 people there. Like, I, I just, I don't know what I should be thinking anymore and what's right, wrong, or otherwise. Can you shed any light on that? Yeah, sure. I think there's a few different ways to look at it. One is, you know, what is the science and what is the medicine uh, behind this in terms of, you know, risk of transmission and risk of infection and whatnot. The other, obviously, I'll avoid this because I'll let people do this themselves, is, you know, a moral uh, approach as well and what's right and what's wrong. Um, from a medicine and a science standpoint, it's pretty clear. We know this virus is primarily transmitted in indoor environments. If you put a lot of people together in an indoor environment, you have a greater probability to amplify this infection. You can reduce the risk of infection with three doses of a vaccine. Two doses helps prevent severe illness and bad illness. Three doses is better than two, but it's not like two does nothing. People can still get infected with two doses and three doses, just less common with three doses. Masks help, but they're, of course, not perfect. Ventilation helps, but, of course, it's not perfect. And, like, you just can't get surprised if you see cases resulting from people together in indoor settings. It doesn't matter what the indoor setting is. It doesn't matter if it's a stadium, a school, a long-term care facility, a hospital, a home. Indoors is indoors is indoors. We can create safer indoor spaces, but, uh, you know, I think the science is pretty obvious at this point in time. There's then, I'll stop blabbing, but people will talk about the moral issues, right? Are you, is it okay to have, uh, you know, 10,000 people indoors when you're talking about delaying school openings or you've got, you know, small businesses that are at 50% capacity that are struggling to make ends meet? And again, you know, everyone's going to come up with their own mental gymnastics to work around that one. But, you know, I'm a fan of how can we make things happen and do it in a safe way rather than shut down, shut down, shut down. Sometimes the answer, unfortunately, is, you know what, we just got to scale things back a bit. But I think the approach should be how can we make things happen rather than the knee-jerk reaction of shutting everything down. So, Doc, is it just the the variant that has us in the state we're in because you know eric and i flashed back to a year ago where we were just starting a shortened 72 game season uh we weren't going to travel across the border to tampa we were going to do everything from the studio um you know teams were uh, you know they were they were testing all of this was being done uh we we were hearing about a vaccine and it was going to start to roll out but here we are a year later with vaccines, boosters. You just gave us a whole bunch of terrific knowledge, and yet we're in a worse place. There's more daily cases here in Ontario. They said it would hit 10,000 by New Year's Day. It, we're, 10, we're over 10,000 today. Like, like, what is it? And where do we start to try and get ahead of this? And you, you just said moral a minute ago. You got people that don't feel for religious, moral, ethical, whatever reasons that they want to take the vaccine. And what, where does that play into it? I, I guess my frustration is, like, we know a whole lot more, but we're, we're not any further ahead. Actually, we're behind where we were when we didn't know. Yeah, I mean, you raise a lot of good points here. 
I honestly, I try, I try to keep hopefully a realistic perspective, but mine's up slightly more optimistic. Um, 76, close to 77% of all Canadians, not eligible, all Canadians have had at least two doses of the vaccine. That's incredible. Um, that number is going to rise as well. And we've got a lot of people about 30. I'm in Toronto, about a third of eligible people in Toronto have received a third dose. That's also really good, especially since we only rapidly started to scale up third doses. The vaccines work. Regardless of what you might hear on Facebook or elsewhere, the vaccines work. It's true that people who are vaccinated are getting infected with a greater uh, probability now with this variant. But it's also true in that they're keeping people healthy in the sense that they're keeping people out of hospital, landing in the ICU and dying. And there's going to be a lot of heavy lifting from this vaccine. Two doses is good. Three doses is better. But it's not like two doses does nothing. Like the cases obviously are are frustrating because this is a very, very transmissible variant. And I don't think we've ever had this much COVID in Ontario or in Canada than ever before. Obviously, those daily case numbers are grossly underestimating the burden of the infection. And yeah, unfortunately, some people are going to get sick and land in hospital. But when you have a wall of immunity, which we do in Canada, with so many people who have had uh, one, two, or three doses of a vaccine, with so many people who've had, unfortunately, had the infection and recovered from the infection, and there is immunity, it's not perfect, but there is immunity from that, even if people get reinfected with the Omicron variant, those people who have had prior infection or vaccination are just much, much, much less likely to get sick and land in hospital. So you can't ignore that there is a huge chunk of the Canadian population that will be protected, not just not against infection, but against severe outcomes from the infection. Obviously, we've got to take steps to, you know, we don't want anyone to get this infection. We've got to take steps to protect the Canadian public and the world. Obviously, got to think globally as well. But, you know, you know, and, and sure, we're going to see spectacularly high case counts and we are going to see a rise in hospitalizations. We already are. Um, I think the real question here is, do we have the capacity to care for those people coming into hospital? Because, you know, this is my first day, my first day off. I'm at home. I just got back from the outdoor ice with my kid. My first day out of the hospital in a while. I can tell you. There's, we're short-staffed across the board. There's just not a lot of healthcare workers around. There's been a lot of attrition over the last couple of years because, you know, quite frankly, working in healthcare stunk for the last two years. So you can't blame people for leaving. And then uh, you've got absences related to COVID exposures or COVID infections. So it's a tough time in healthcare. So capacity is going to be an issue over the coming uh, coming uh, you know month or so. But you know, like anything else, we're going to ride this wave out. We'll do the best we can. We've got some tools to keep it under control. We've got tools to protect ourselves and to protect the community. It's not going to be perfect. Some people are going to get land in hospital. Not nice to talk about, but it's a sad reality. Some people are going to die. Uh, we've got to take steps to reduce that as much as possible. And we can, and we should. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure what else to say here. I'll let you guys <laughs> take it from here. I'm rambling. <laughs> no, listen. Ramble as much as you want because at least it's no. coming from a doctor and not one of us rambling and trying to pretend like we know what the heck's going on. So, uh, and, I, and I will say this as well. Uh, first of all, thank you for joining us for you know, 10, 20 minutes on your day off and, and taking you away from your kids. I mean, if, if we had known that, we would have bugged you another day. But maybe on another day you couldn't do it because you'd be busy trying to help folks and save lives and whatever. So thanks for carving out a little bit of time for us. We're speaking with Dr. Isaac Bogach, uh, infectious disease physician and scientist. So, so Doc, 
again, I got, I'm sure Jonesy does as well, a thousand questions here. Um, how, and I'm sure there's no easy answer either. How do we get to a point, or when do we get to a point? And I'm sure you can't say, Eric, it will be on January 20th or February 3rd. But when do we get to a point where uh, Omicron, Delta, COVID in general is much like uh, SARS, H1N1, where it's still out there. I mean, people are still getting those uh, various viruses and diseases, but it's not to the extent where it was when those first burst onto the scene and we were getting vaccinated and they were running rampant and we were trying to get ahead of it and we tackled those viruses um, at, at, a, at a better rate because maybe they weren't as infectious as, as what coronavirus has turned out to be. When do we get to that point? I guess the best question, if I'm now, I'm the one babbling and, and blabbing on. When are we going to be normal again? When are we not going to okay. be 50% capacity? When are we not going to worry about testing? When are we going to, like, when is stuff going to be normal or at least closer to normal? Okay, a couple of thoughts. So point one is we will get there. We absolutely will. There will be a time where we don't care about the, you know, everyone's going to tune in to see how many cases there are. We won't have to wear masks or test or have capacity limits. Like, there will be a time. Like, that. that is going to happen. Um, you know, when is obviously... Uh, tricky and, and you know I, I'm always skeptical of anyone who uh, you know speaks with confidence in the COVID era of what's going to happen more than six weeks ahead of where we're at right now. But here's here's a theory, and you know I, I fully acknowledge this could be completely wrong, but you know we're going to get to a point where enough people have either been vaccinated or infected and recovered or both. And and when enough people have been vaccinated, infected or recovered or both in the community, when COVID rips through town again, which it will, because this is not going away, it just won't impact us as significantly as it has in the past. Like, remember, wave two and wave three in Canada was just awful. Like, it was bad. I mean, our healthcare systems were stretched to the brink. There were, you know, you know a terrible number of wave one, lots of people dead. And, and, you know, when you have enough community-level protection through vaccination and uh, recovery from infection in some combination, COVID's still going to come through town and, you know, might infect or reinfect people. But it just won't disrupt us as significantly as it has during our prior waves. Some people think this might be the wave where everyone's exposed at some point in the next two to three months it's going to be hard to escape this just because it's so transmissible i'm not saying this is going to happen i'm saying these are discussions that are happening and you know maybe at the end of this wave sometime by the spring uh or late you know in the next few weeks or months or something like that you know we have so many people who have been vaccinated because those programs are rolling or recovered from infection or both that you know when the next variant or wave rolls through town, perhaps it won't disrupt us as significantly. And, and, uh, and you know, we can carry on carrying on. Hey, maybe a few people will decide to wear masks and maybe uh, we'll get a, a booster or another, you know, an annual COVID vaccine, just like we get an annual flu shot. Maybe that's in the cards. Uh, I don't know. But I, I think that as time moves forward, we, this is going to get easier and easier, not harder and harder. And um, I think there's some decent arrows pointing in that direction. Is it going to be this spring? I can't look in the eye and tell you with any confidence, but certainly those conversations are happening. So, so Doc, it, it sounds like, it, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but you partially, do you partially agree with 
NBA Commissioner Adam Silver that says the virus isn't going to be eradicated. We're going to have to learn to live with it. And that's kind of his, I wouldn't say bottom line, but one of the justifications for, look, let's kind of get through the season. Let's kind of keep it rolling, keep it going. I know, I mean, we look at, you know, partially inferior products because your best players can't play. But if you were running a pro sports league, uh, you know, managing the bottom line and, and, and the moral ethical side of the disease and, and trying to keep people safe, like, should we should we keep playing? You, you think we should kind of keep playing through it? And, you know, if guys get it, it you, you treat it like you said, almost like, you know, the flu or something uh, that's that's sick. It keeps you out for a few games. And then when you're healthy, you get back in there. Is that is that a is that a good point of view? I mean, there's, uh, so I agree this virus isn't going away. I agree that, if, you know, we all have to come to terms that we will eventually have to live with it. But, you know, there's obviously huge caveats. That means we still need, that doesn't ignore the fact that we should obviously continue to take steps to protect individuals, especially vulnerable individuals, from getting this infection and having a severe outcome from this infection. So, you know, lots of things can be true. Um, in terms of professional sports in the COVID era, I always think of uh, several different points. I think of player safety, like player and personnel safety. So point one, uh, the second one is public health and public safety. The third one is ethics. And the fourth one is optics. So from a player safety, you know, these guys are generally young and healthy. And if they've had vaccine dose one, two, and three, it would be extremely unusual for any of these players, even if they were infected, to have a severe outcome. Yes, we don't want anyone to get this infection, but like it'd be unusual for someone to get really sick. Could happen, but it would be rare. From a public health and public safety standpoint, you don't want to be responsible for amplifying this virus and causing issues in the communities that you work in. You're not in a vacuum. So does that mean, you know, are you... Um, siphoning off resources from the local community for testing. You're probably not at this stage of the game, but these are things to consider. Are you amplifying the virus because you're having massive uh, super spreading events at your games? You know, these are things that you have to think about. So that's the public health standpoint. From an ethics standpoint, again, you have sort of what we chatted about earlier, like what are the ethical considerations? And I'm sure we could go for days talking about that. And then optics. And again, I'm not one to talk about optics. I mean, I think that's for the league, but, you know, what are the optics of this as well? So those are the big things, player and personnel safety, public health and safety, the ethics and the optics. And I think if people consider all four of those, if sports leagues consider all four of those, and uh, you, can, you can generally move forward in a smart path. And, you know, that might mean adjusting what you do. Um, and you're, you're seeing some of that in the different markets because obviously these, these teams work in different, in different cities, which are governed by different uh, politics and different public health units. So that's why you're seeing very disparate policies, you know, in Toronto and, and several of the other markets in the United States. Uh, Doc, I, 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 I want to preface this by saying by no means do I want to make you have to answer or, or, or be the spokesman for the NBA or the Toronto Raptors or whatever. But this, this, is, a, this is a basketball-specific question, but it ties into us in, in regular everyday life as well as we await what we assume is coming today or tomorrow, an announcement coming from the Premier or the Minister of Health in regards to maybe changes in terms of uh, the way we're tackling uh, protocols and isolation or return to school. Like there, There's a lot of unanswered questions left out there. Uh, right now, and again, as I say, we're awaiting an announcement at, at some point today. Fred Van Vliet, 
uh, of the Raptors yesterday sends out a tweet just prior to the Raptors tip-off against the 76ers saying, I can't wait to get back with the guys again. Trying to make sense of all the protocols, but it is what it is. Feeling good. See you soon. Let's go, Raptors. That tweet comes out a few hours after uh, the CDC stateside, and hopefully I'm articulating this properly, but the CDC basically changes their guidelines for regular everyday citizens in the U.S. in terms of five days. If you're, if you're good to go within five days, boom, you're back. The NBA was at a point where they, where they were saying six days. Now, since we've been on the air with you in this conversation, uh, Sham Sharani, one of the great NBA reporters, has sent out a tweet saying sources telling him that the NBA is now adopting the CDC's guidance for a five-day isolation. Yeah, so Toronto Public Health this. still has 10 days. So yeah. I'm not saying we should be taking advice from the U.S. They, they, they've done a lot of things wrong, in my opinion. But is there a happy medium somewhere, or is this where there's a lot of confusion for the general public, especially here in Canada and here in Ontario? We're going, hold on a second, are we being overprotective? Are they being underprotective? Are we being too extreme? Are they not being extreme enough? And this leads to the confusion or the frustration for a lot of folks. Oh, I hear you. I hear you. I, like... The, the changing policy, the policy that sometimes aligns with data and sometimes doesn't align with data, the ridiculous policy, uh, sometimes good policy, like it, and the, but the changing, like it, it's, it's so confusing. And it, you can see how this would anger so many people, especially when you have policy that doesn't make any sense. And everybody knows it. Like people are smart and they know at this point in the time, at this point in time, what's right and what's wrong. So when you have stupid policy, it's just, it's just the worst. Okay, couple of points. Like everything else, nuance and details matter. See, the CDC changed their guidelines. So basically they said if you're infected with COVID, you now have to isolate for five days. And if your fever has resolved and if your symptoms are starting to improve, you can come out of isolation, but you still have to wear a mask for the next five days. Now, we all know how that's going to go with the mask wearing, but, but that's the guidance. And the reason they're doing this is because there's so much Omicron out there that they're concerned about things like staffing and keeping the you know economy going and keeping businesses going because you can't it's not realistic to have people uh, sit at home for ten days. So they said put on a mask, you're less likely to be transmissible after five days. But they fully acknowledge that some people can be transmissible at five days. I think a very reasonable approach could be to shorten the period of isolation from 10 days to something smaller. If you want to do a five, six, seven days, the longer you wait, the less likely you'll have more people who are out coming out of isolation still contagious to others. If we had access or better access to rapid testing, these would be really per- a very helpful tool to integrate into shortening the isolation period. And, you know, I know that at least in the U.S., they're going to be flooded with these soon. In Canada, we probably might get flooded with them soon. It's too, I mean, many of us have been banging this drum for over a year now, but like it would be very helpful to say, you know what, at five days or six days or seven, to pick a number that's less than 10. If you have a negative rapid test, you know, you're good to go. You're good to come out. Um, it's interesting because, you know, the NBA and many of the other professional sports leagues, of course, these are resource extravagant environments. They have the ability to test. They have the ability to look at uh, different test results and see, is this player still contagious to others, yes or no, and use that to help guide uh, people coming out of uh, isolation so they don't infect the rest of the team. When you're dealing with a a population like 
Canada or the United States. It's obviously going to be a lot messier and you don't have the same tools or uh, uh, control over these individual uh, situations that are happening by, you know, the tens of thousands per day. So, you know, if you just give people the tools for success and give them smart guidance, like, yeah, you don't have to isolate for 10 days. We can shorten it. And again, we could debate if it's five, six, seven days. But here's a bazillion rapid tests at your disposal. Here's how you use them. Hey, day five, you're negative. Welcome. Come on out. Day, if it's positive, hang out for a couple of more days and then come out. You can make simple policy like that, which would be which would be very helpful. Oh, Doc, so much to so much to chew on. Um, I, I, I guess the last one for me is, um, in terms of the arena, because uh, that's the environment that selfishly that Eric and I are in most of the time. Is it is it as simple as for us, um, coaching staff, anybody who's not playing, ushers, uh, security people? patrons, fans, it is, is it as simple as uh, wear your mask and, and don't get too close to people? Is, is, is it as simple as that in terms of, uh, you know, trying to dip and dive and, and, and dodge and, and avoid catching the virus? And is the 50%, would it matter if it's 50% or 100% if everybody's doing that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yes and no. I mean, obviously... There's, there's no perfect solution. We think of all these little interventions as reducing risk, but when you put a ton of them together, you can significantly reduce risk. So three doses of a vaccine is really helpful, and it reduces your risk of getting this infection way more than two doses. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. Wearing a mask is really helpful as well. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. But a high-quality mask that's tightly fit, that's made out of good material, will help, Okay. Better ventilation in indoor settings. Is that going to help? Yeah, a little bit. It sure will. Distancing between people. Will that help? Sure. It absolutely will. Most COVID, not all, but most COVID is transmitted between people in indoor settings who are in close proximity to each other. If everyone's, you know, ensuring everyone's vaccinated or integrating rapid testing before you walk into a building, if everyone's negative before they walk in, that's also helpful. Like, there, there are tools to create safer indoor settings. When you add them all together, you really can do a good job and create a much safer indoor space. Notice how I'm not saying safe. I'm saying safer. We're not in a world of zero yes. risk. We're absolutely not. We can improve the safety with the tools that we have at our disposal. Could it, it sure could be a lot better, right? If we listened to you know some of the experts over a year ago and, and really jumped on the rapid testing bandwagon, we could have flooded Canada with rapid tests. And, you know, you, they're not perfect, but you can really help integrate those in day-to-day -day life. You can wear a better mask. You can combat misinformation and disinformation amplified online with, you know, bogus vaccine claims and really just say, you know what, these work. They're fine. Let's go get our vaccines and, and, and you know, not deal with, uh, you know, anti-vax crowds that are spouting utter garbage. You know, like there's, there's a lot of ways that we can improve the, the uptake of the tools that we have. Um, and, you know, I think by and large, when you take a step back and look at Canada in general, we're, we're actually pretty good. I mean, we love to self-criticize and we should, and we have to take a good hard look in the mirror at what we did right and what we did wrong. But when we look at us versus other countries in the world, we're, we're actually pretty good and we're ahead of the game. Doesn't mean we're perfect and there's certainly room for improvement, but we are doing rather well. 
Doc, we could go on for another hour or five, uh, but you've given us enough, t- enough time. We've taken you away from the family enough. Uh, we appreciate this. Thank you for joining us. You've been a, a great follow on social media, and it's great to, to finally, uh, well, not meet, but at least chat here and uh, look forward to speaking to you under hopefully better circumstances uh, much sooner than later. Thanks again, Doc. My pleasure. Have a great day, guys. Thanks, Doc. There is Dr. Isaac Bogach, infectious disease physician and scientist, University of Toronto. Uh, as I just mentioned, you can follow him on Twitter. Um, Bogach Isaac is his handle. And uh, to spell the name for you, B-O-G-O-C-H and Isaac, I-S-A-A-C. Uh, follow him. He's got fantastic information. And at least in my humble opinion, and you just heard it over the last 20, 25 minutes as well, balanced opinion and perspective i don't think he's he's uh you know blowing the trumpet uh on on one side more so than the other i think he's trying to take a a mature informed responsible balanced uh informed approach jonesy and and trying to recognize that uh you know the 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 threat is real but the um the importance of continuing life is real as well and hopefully I'm articulating that properly or, or representing his words properly. And I think that's where we kind of were when we first started talking about this an hour, hour and a half ago, where it's trying to balance in your own mind, in your own everyday life, what is or isn't safe, smart, moral, ethical, responsible, et cetera, and, and, and trying to find your way through navigating, uh, you know, everyday life in general. Yeah, no, no, you're right. And uh, it's nice to hear that, as you said, balanced and not, an understanding that it's not uh, there's there's no perfect solution, uh, but you know we push forward and trying to do the best we can. It's Smith and Jones on Sportsnet 590 The Fan.